Hello, it's Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. Today is the 6th of January, 2021. <clears throat> We've been talking a great deal about metabolism and T lymphocytes. I went through the regulation of glycolysis, intermediary metabolism, including the tricarboxylic acid cycle, uh, homoelectric fermentation, electron transport chain, oxidative phosphorylation, and then beta oxidation of fatty acids, all of which can generate energy. And then we also started to talk about the fact that T cells, once they're activated via their T cell receptor and their co-activating adapter surface membrane receptors after present presentation from an antigen presenting cell, uh, all of that triggers then this initial activation, which is glycolytic in terms of bioenergetics. It's followed then by a steady, steady increase in carbon flow into the TCA cycle. Ultimately, citric acid is synthesized, translocated back into the cytoplasm, also synthesized, of course, in the mitochondria. And it is in the cytoplasm that um, acetyl-CoA and oxaloacetic acid are resynthesized. The acetyl-CoA is then used to make fatty acids and cholesterol via those two de novo pathways. And then you have storage cholesterol in the form of cholesterol esters and storage triacylglycerol in the form of oil droplets. So when the T cell is fully differentiating and starting to synthesize and then secrete cytokines, such as pro-inflammatory cytokines, if they're T effector cells, for example, uh, the CD4 positive lineage, then they're going to need a lot of energy to, to synthesize all of those glycoproteins, which become the cytokines, chemokines, and growth factors. And also they're going to have the machinery necessary to move those proteins out of the cell. We went through all of that in the last four lectures. Now I'm going to give you a little bit uh, more detail about metabolic control and even um, give you a little sprinkling of uh, enzyme kinetics, because I think it's appropriate for us to bring in all of the different pillars of biochemistry uh, when they should be discussed. And today is one of those days. So <clears throat> first of all, let me just give you a straight narrative of what happens uh, with hormonal regulation. Now, insulin will stimulate fatty acid synthesis, for example, in the liver, and it'll do so by activating an enzyme called acetylchloric carboxylase. Glucagon and epinephrine, those are two other hormones, they have basically the opposite effect. So insulin is secreted in the beta cells of the pancreas after a meal and otherwise in the well-fed state. Now, that's a hormonal regulation we could spend a lot of time on, but insulin doesn't play a role in T-lymphocyte glycolytic metabolism or really even lipid metabolism because the systems that work within the T lymphocyte, at least for glucose uptake, are insulin independent. There's a different glucose transporter called GLUT1 in the T cell membrane. Now let's talk a little bit about some of these uh, intermediates and pathways that we've already talked about. Citric acid, palmitoyl-CoA, and adenosyl monophosphate, once in the cytoplasm, will all exert control over glycolysis and fatty acid metabolism. Particularly citrate is a signal that basically 
uh, once it's in the cytoplasm, heralds in de novo anabolic biosynthesis. That's when energy is highly available. And that's why citrate activates, actually causes a polymerization of that acetylcarcaboxylase, which again is the first real reaction leading to fatty acid synthesis. The uh, product of acetylcarcaboxylase, of course, is malonyl-CoA. Now, palmitoyl-CoA and AMP work to inhibit that same enzyme, the carboxylase. AMP, uh, the cell is therefore depleted of energy, so it stops fat, uh, carbon going into fatty acid synthesis. That's why AMP is an allosteric inhibitor of the carboxylase. And of course, palmitoyl-CoA, that's end product uh, inhibition. Now, a little bit about hexokinases. Hexokinases are the enzymes which phosphorylate glucose once it's taken into the cell. Now, there are multiple forms of hexokinases, but three of them, hexokinases uh, isoforms one through three, are all inhibited by their product, which is glucose-6-phosphate. Now, the kind of inhibition that is exhibited there uh, in terms of enzyme kinetics is called a non-competitive inhibition with respect to glucose. But it's a competitive inhibition that is the product of the reaction with respect to ATP, which is also a substrate. So the inhibition by glucose 6-phosphate takes place at physiological concentrations, which would argue for it being, of course, significant in the cell. A lot of times when you look at kinetics, if it's done in a test tube or just in isolated cells, it's not always necessarily the same kind of uh, phenomena occurring in the intact organism. But uh, you look for physiological concentrations having these effects, and typically that would mean that there is a mimic or there is exactly an analog that occurs in the entire system, the, the system put together as a living uh, creature. So this whole concept about glucose 6-phosphate is, of course, uh, uh, only one parameter hexokinases are regulated. Um, they're also regulated or antagonized by inorganic phosphate. Now, that's really important for exokinase 1, but not uh, HK2 or 3 isoforms. So the inhibition involves a site which is not the same allosteric site as glucose binding. Now, that usually means that uh, where this occurs must have something to do with the structure of the inhibitor. And in fact, this points to an importance of the, where the hydroxyl group is in relation to the orientation of the correct anomeric form of the carbon uh, uh, two on that hexose sugar. All of those make for good inhibitors, in fact. And other studies have indicated that glucose 6-phosphate binds to two halves of hexokinases one and two, and where that occurs are at positions that overlap the ATP binding site. All of that agrees with the inhibition of glucose 6-phosphate uh, is competitive for ATP but not glucose, okay? So this then allows me to talk a little bit about competitive, non-competitive inhibition, et cetera. Now, a reaction is a competitive inhibitor when it functions like this. Substrate going to enzyme substrate after the introduction of the, of the enzyme with the substrate, the binding, um, you're gonna make an ES complex. That ES complex will then dissociate with a rate constant called K3, to enzyme plus free product. Now, it's at this stage where the enzyme, free enzyme, can bind to the inhibitor, and you can make an enzyme inhibitor complex. The rate constant for the EI complex is a K5, and then 
the removal of the inhibitor back to free enzyme and free inhibitor is a rate constant of K6. And so when they give you these individual rate constants, you can do enzyme kinetics. That is, you can examine mathematically what is the velocity of these reactions and what is the necessary concentration of substrates and products in order to carry out either as substrates or intermediates or inhibitors of those reactions. That's all part of michaelis menten kinetics, right? So an uncompetitive inhibitor works this way. You start off with an enzyme and a substrate, rate constant K1 going to ES complex. At this point, the ES complex can react with the inhibitor with a rate constant at K5, making an ESI intermediate. So this is an uncompetitive inhibitor. Now that can occur, or the enzyme substrate complex can also, with a, a rate that's diagnosed by K3 to enzyme product. So it's the ES that can bind to the inhibitor in the uncompetitive inhibitor system. Finally, the one that we were just talking about for uh, hexokinase, the non-competitive inhibitor works this way. You have an enzyme and a substrate, and even before you have a reaction, the E plus S can react with the I, and you can have an EI. EI can go back to form E plus S plus free I, I being inhibitor. The same time, with their own rate constants, E plus S can make an ES complex, but that ES complex can actually then react with inhibitor, making an ESI. The ESI can then go on to go back to make an EI plus S, or the ESI can, with the rate constant K prime three, go to enzyme plus product, plus presumably free inhibitor. Finally, the ES complex, rather than working with the inhibitor, can do what it naturally does, which is go to enzyme, free enzyme, and product. So that's how non-competitive inhibitors work. So I want you to understand something. When you raise the substrate concentration of enzyme-catalyzed reaction from substrate level 1x, 2x, 3x, 4x, and you plot that with time on the x-axis and product on the y-axis, a straight-up plot, this is called, you can look at individual rate constants. there, And then we start talking about velocity of the reaction, which is the amount of product made over time. So, so it's usually uh, delta P, the change in product, over delta T, right? Now, with when you increase substrate concentration, the curve that you get starting from the origin, is it's almost a straight line when substrate level is at its lowest. But as you increase substrate level, um, 2x, 3x, 4x, like I just said, the curve starts to look hyperbolic. So you're saturating the amount of enzyme with substrate so that the reaction moves slower at the beginning, the product forms slower at the beginning, but then eventually it reaches a higher total amount of product because you have more substrate there, okay? Now, if you took a straight line and ran it through the origin, uh, looking at the slope of the lines of those hyperbola you just made with the substrate, that would be called the V naught or the initial velocity because measuring the amount of product form instantaneously after substrate is added, okay? So that in mind, 
you can make a straight up plot where imagine a curvilinear response with increasing substrate with the x-axis and increasing reaction velocity. Now we're calling V naught on the y-axis. And as the curvilinear response goes, you're making more and more uh, product. The reaction velocity increases and it almost makes it asymptotically at the top of what's called the V max. That's the maximum velocity the enzyme can do when the enzyme is fully saturated with substrate. Now, if you draw a one-half Vmax or Vmax over two on that y-axis, and you run a straight line into that curve um, from the left, and then you draw, draw, drop a line right down to the x-axis from that same point, that point on the x-axis will give you the Km. That's the Michaelis-Menten binding complex uh, and it has a numerical value. And the Km basically represents when the enzyme is at half maximal. Therefore, Km equals Vmax divided by two, if you understand. And it's a substrate concentration where the enzyme will be half saturated. Okay. Now, there's more I can say about that, but I want to take a double reciprocal of that plot. So now, on the x-axis, you have one over substrate. And on the y-axis, you have one over initial velocity. Now, you, you, what, what that does when you do a uh, when you do a double reciprocal plot is you make that curve a straight line that runs through the origin, and that straight line is going to have a slope of km divided by v max. It's going to have a y-intercept of one over v max, and it's going to have an x-intercept which is going to be in the negative, so it's going to be a negative one over km. Now, from that uh, uh, manipulation of the data, that is by taking the double reciprocal and drawing this plot, it's called a line weaver burke plot, you can actually determine some kinetic parameters. What are they? Vmax and Km, directly from the plot. So now I'm going to tell you that when you look at inhibitors and you look at that same plot, it, what happens with a competitive inhibitor as you increase the inhibitor, those straight lines move um, essentially counterclockwise, they hit the, they, they intercept the y-axis at the same place, but they hit the x-axis at three different locations, okay? And as you increase the inhibitor, where it hits the x-axis, it's going to be in the negative zone past to the left of the origin. It's going to be closest to the origin, which means 1 over v is the smallest level there. So because that is 1 over V and it's in the neg it's a negative 1 over V, 1 over the velocity, then you know that the Km then is, of course, going to be a component of that x-axis intercept. That plot will show you that a competitive inhibitor raises the Km. It raises the relative Km. So what that means is that whatever the Km is for that enzyme to be half-maximal in activity, is no longer the same because the inhibitor is competing for the substrate site. So it, it, it sort of relatively raises the Km because it's competing for the active side of the enzyme. So competitive inhibitors raise the Km, whereas an uncompetitive inhibitor will raise the Km and lower the maximum velocity of the reaction. So it does both. But the non-competitive inhibitor, the one we're talking about with glucose 6-phosphate and the hexokinase reaction, that non-competitive inhibitor lowers the Vmax for sure, 
but it has no effect on the KM. So the XX intercept is unchanged when you do these Langweaver-Burke double reciprocal plots. Okay. So now back to some physiology. For type 2 diabetes, okay, now understand we're talking about T lymphocytes, but this is occurring, of course, discussion is occurring in the backdrop of a the health of a human being, right? Because we're talking about T lymphocytes because we're trying to hone in on how the immune system affects aging. Now, you know that a major disease that's associated with morbidity in aging humans is type 2 diabetes. And you know that it is directly linked to obesity. So for type 2 diabetes, what happens is that there's an increased beta oxidation of fatty acids because there's more fatty acid in the serum bound to lipoprotein, of course. Because that's and that's be, and also in that fatty acid will also make it into the cell because of uptake. Now that's because glucose uptake becomes impaired in type two diabetes because either insulin resistance and in all the tissues that are that that have insulin dependent glucose uptake, such as the adipose, okay, and muscle. But in the T lymphocyte, the reason that you get um, glucose uptake impaired is because of that hexokinase enzyme. So you get classical, what's called feedback inhibition. So that means more glucose stays in the bloodstream, and that's one of the hallmarks of diabetes, right? High circulating serum glucose, particularly postprandial. So feedback inhibition, that works in conjunction with mitochondrial dysfunction, because of um, corruption in the NADH to NAD ratios. And that ultimately can lead to accumulation of multiple intermediates and in fatty acid metabolism in the cell of a diabetic, okay? And what are those intermediates? Fatty acyl-CoA's, acyl-carnitines, and then shorter chain fatty acyl-CoA's and acyl-carnitines on the way for beta oxidation, of course. And that's going to then alter numerous cellular regulatory, and indeed signaling cascade pathways. Now, something about glucose transport proteins. GLUT1 and GLUT4, those are two different isoforms, facilitate glucose transport into insulin-sensitive cells. However, GLUT1, that transporter, is insulin-independent, widely distributed in all kinds of tissues, including T lymphocytes. GLUT4, which is not found in T lymphocytes, is insulin dependent. And th the case is that it's responsible for the majority of glucose transport into muscle and adipose, particularly during anab anabolic conditions, such as in the well-fed state, such as in the obese patient. Now, insulin resistance is dependent upon whether the glucose entering through GLUT1 or GLUT4 is the motif for that tissue type. So that's because of the glucose 6-phosphate formation within the cell. Glucose entering the muscle cell through GLUT4, and then it becomes phosphorylated by hexokinase 2, is mainly directed for glycogen synthesis and glycolysis. But if glucose is entering through GLUT1 and it becomes phosphorylated by hexokinase 1, the glucose 6-phosphate is available for all the metabolic pathways including hexosamine, 
and of course, uh, OPP, the axial pentosphosphate of cortical glycolysis. And depending on whether or not glycogen synthesis is inhibited by the GSK3, that's a glycogen synthase kinase isoform 3, you can also get some glycogen synthesis. Okay. Now, back to this discussion I was giving you with in terms of the acyl-CoAs and type 2 diabetes. Remember that fatty acyl-CoAs, acyl-carnitines altered many cellular regulatory signaling pathways. When that happens, this contributes to the integration of glycolytic flux and fatty acid utilization, particularly during metabolic transition, such as the T lymphocyte, right? So there's an argument that it's possible that PFK1, because it's regulated by these acyl-CoAs, that that whole system could potentially be a target for pharmaceuticals for those people who suffer from type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome, both, both of which are linked to obesity, okay? So that's an important point. Now, naive T cells, okay, which is, which is one of the key discussions we've been having now for the last several lectures, naive T lymphocytes regulate their metabolic activity so that they generate energy and they also synthesize intermediates. And this happens for two reasons. One is to keep the cell functioning, of course, bioenergetics, but the other is for cell proliferation. So glycolysis and oxfos, oxidative phosphorylation, are the two main ways you make ATP, right? Glycolysis begins with the uptake of glucose, you know, from the extracellular milieu. In this case, it's from GLUT1 in the lymphocyte. And of course, you convert that glucose via glycolysis to pyruvate. And then it can enter into the pentosphosphate shunt, and that will give you the uh, ribose 5-phosphate and the NADPH necessary for more complex growth and reducing equivalents for later down the road to make fatty acids and cholesterol. Right. Okay. Now, you also know that acetyl-CoA can enter the TCA cycle after pyruvate dehydrogenase, and of course, via OAA, via pyruvate carboxylase. So pyruvate can be converted to lactate in the cytoplasm, and that gets excreted. But glycolysis also has to regenerate NAD+. Remember, that can be done with lactate dehydrogenase. But you can also get the replenishment of NAD+, running the TCA cycle. And indeed, cycling through beta-oxidation. Beta-oxidation product is NADH, but the NADH will end up being used in the mitochondria. So you have GLUT1 taking in glucose. You get glycolysis, the OPP, you get pyruvate, you get lactate. Lactate can lead by a monocarboxylic acid transporter of that, from that cell. Pyruvate can enter the TCA cycle in the mitochondria. Citrate can be made. And when that occurs later in the T cell life cycle, after the induction of the T cell receptor, and the T cells starting to proliferate, differentiate, and get ready to make pro-inflammatory cytokines, for example, because it's turning into a from a CD4 positive cell to a um, T helper cell, TH1, TH2, TH17, uh, for example. So you're going to have to get citrate out of the mitochondria. Remember then that when it leaves the cytosol, it gets in the cytosol, that citrate that's going to activate the acetyl-CoCarboxylase, remember that? It's also going to generate some acetyl-CoA, which will get in the fatty acid synthase pathway, uh, including, and of course that starts with the carboxylase, making mal-CoA. Make palmitoyl coa and you can make lipids that way. Right? Now, on top of all that, TC, 
the T cell also can take up amino acids to a bulk transporter, particularly glutamine can go through glutaminolysis, make glutamate, and that can enter the TCA cycle at the level of alpha ketoglutarate, contributing to oxidative phosphorylation and also contributing to carbon flow okay, throughout that cycle. Keeping the TCA cycle going while still allowing citrate to be secreted because citrate is occurring earlier in the TCA cycle. You understand, of course. All right. Now, from a paper published in the International Journal of Molecular Science in 2019, October of that year, so just a year and a few months ago, in the quiescent state, T cells produce ATP through mitochondrial oxfos, of course. That process requires fatty acids as, and amino acids, and they are, of course, going to be metabolized to generate intermediates, and subsequently all those intermediates are going to get oxidized in the TCA cycle, you're going to make a lot of NADH from beta oxidation of fatty acids directly. And the TCA cycle is going to enter if it's glutamine directly at alpha glutarate after transamination. So, again, lipids enter fatty acid oxidation, and, uh, and you make acetate or acetyl CoA, and you can also make ketone bodies, acetoacetate and beta hydroxybutyrate. Or the acetyl CoA can actually be used to run the TCA cycle. Of course. So even make more NADH and more FADH2, which you make from beta oxidation, you can also make the TCA cycle, so that you can have plenty of bioenergy to make all of the pro-inflammatory cytokines you need for the fully activated T effector cell lineages. Okay. Now remember that ATP production in glycolysis alone is far less efficient than running NADH and FADH2 through the electron transport chain OxFos, where you get upwards of tenfold higher amounts of ATP synthesized. So the T cell decision is to use glycolysis or oxidative phosphorylation. And of course, that's regulated by that fatty acyl CoA we were talking about by causing the palmitylation of phosphofortokinase 1, plugging it into the plasma membrane as regulated by the acetylsphingomyelin. All of that then is regulated so that carbon can flow into oxfos to so have enough energy for activation, differentiation, and proliferation of the T lymphocyte so that you're optimally balancing ATP synthesis and then ADP and AMP production, plus the whole slew of biosynthetic intermediates you need, uh, including things like NADPH to run reductive biosynthesis, such as in nucleotide metabolism and cholesterol synthesis and fatty acid synthesis, right? So quiescent T cells have a basal bioenergetic need, which can be just supported by a, a very slow movement through oxfos. And of course, that's all fatty acid oxidation. But when you activate the T cell metabolism, rigs up to do glycolysis, plugs all that carbon into lactate, so you can make a lot of ATP very quickly, and at the same time, start synthesizing its own triacylglycerol. At the same time, taking some fatty acyl-CoA up from the CD36 receptor, the orphan receptor. Okay? And this way, it allows its ability to shift from quiescent oxfos from fatty acid oxidation to full-blown glycolysis, lactic acid synthesis, and then back to not, um, not directly to beta oxidation, of course, but movement to make fatty acids, make cholesterol for cell proliferation as cell division. When you need new membranes, 
You need more fatty acids and you need cholesterol for all those membranes, but you also need all the energy that's provided by the production of triacylglycerol, which can then be broken down by lipases. Fatty acids run through the beta oxidation. You make a lot more ATP. So you see how that works. It's multifunctional, multifunctional. All right. So I think that's about all the time I've got for today. So I'm going to stop here. Um, again, what, I'm, what I've just done for you is I've given, I'm putting together, I'm assembling now uh, the other elements of what's going on biochemically in the T lymphocyte. And we gave you a little bit of sort of uh, a taste for enzyme kinetics and explained to you about non-competitive inhibition and why that's really important when you think about the hexokinase regulating glucose influx through via GLUT1 and that that's yet another component to start shifting toward, right, utilization of fatty acids, which will then slowly cause the conversion and change of the pathway so you become fatty acid biosynthetic. All right. So this is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios on the 6th of January, 2021, uh, saying bye for now.